0: All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. Volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from
1: tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something.
0: Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have another fish, another flashing chance at bliss, another fish, another fish, That's right, we are taking off on that crystal ship today. Welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast brought to you by Inventive Fishing. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and we have got a great voyage for you today because we have the one, the only, Misty Wells on the show today. Misty is the host of Let's Take It Outside, a show that I'm a big fan of because I'm a big fan of what Misty does, not only on that show, but for recreational fishing and outdoor life in general. And then on the bourbon break today, we'll be headed out to sea with Jefferson's Ocean. And then I'm going to get you hooked as I count down my top 10 favorite circle hooks. And trust me on this, when I talk about hooks, you'll get my point. As always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please get your friends and family hooked on the smartest fishing podcast on the internet, The Politics of Fish. Oh, wait, wait. I mean the Rodcast. The Politics of Fish was last week's episode. The Rodcast. Get them hooked on the Rodcast. The crystal ship is being filled. A thousand girls, a thousand thrills, a million ways to spend your time. When we'll get back, I'll drop a line. Welcome to the Rodcast, let's get casting. Okay, I am thrilled to welcome to the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today, the one, the only Misty Wells. Now, Misty is the host of Let's Take It Outside, which airs on seven different networks, including the World Fishing Network, Waypoint Outdoors TV, My Outdoor TV, The Hunt Channel, The Discover Florida Channel, Carbon TV, and of course, Bally Sports, which is a Fox television sports channel. Let's Take It Outside has been housed on the Fox network since 2020. And in fact, Misty is the first woman to host an outdoor television show on the Fox sports network. Let's Take It Outdoors is headed into its third season. Now, Misty began her career as an outdoor writer and then hosted a live radio show for two years. And that's when Fox reached out to her and invited her to make Let's Take It Outdoors. Misty is an avid hunter, always sighting in deer, elk, hogs, turkey, duck, dove, quail, alligators, pythons, iguanas, and more but she's also a fanatic saltwater angler with a world of experience both inshore and offshore and i'm hoping that we can tap into that expertise today so misty it's great to have the opportunity to talk with you again and it's great to have you on the rodcast thanks for being here
1: i love it the rodcast that's uh that's a lot of fun and you know it's it's awesome because we're reconnecting uh, it was great having you on the radio show uh, many years ago, I read an amazing article that you had written uh, about tarpon fishing, and also cobia as well. And I was like, "Gosh, I got to get that guy on my radio show because uh, I learned a lot through your article and also, you know, through the interview." So it was it was really great, and it's very great to be on your broadcast. I love uh, it.
0: Thanks, thanks. It's very kind of you. So. Let's start with some origin story stuff. You grew up in Clearwater on Florida's West Coast, and you've been fishing your whole life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got introduced to fishing and how it became such a passion for you?
1: Definitely. You know, I'm a third generation here in Florida, which uh, we're somewhat of a a unicorn nowadays. Yeah, we are. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, my grandfather, uh, would take my dad and all his brothers fishing. They loved catching, uh, pompano, uh, different, you know, tarpon, different things kind of in the shallow, close to shore, uh, regions. They didn't really have a boat or anything because I grew up fishing with my dad off the beach, on the piers. We'd fish on the jetties all the time, but what really kind of kicked it up a notch for me uh, and opened up a whole new world. I was working at a hotel in the hotel business and a tournament team of all ladies called the real darlings came to me and we were talking about sponsorship. And I'm like, what, you know, tell me about this whole world. I don't know anything about. And this was several years ago. So I was able to get on the team and start uh, tournament fishing in these kingfish tournaments, uh, really any tournament that they'd let me go fishing in, I would go fishing. I just wanted to soak it all up and learn anything I could. And that really opened up uh, a whole new world to me uh, in, in this fishing life. And it's, it's, you know, turned me into a beast ever since, or the best beast that I can be.
0: <laughs> that's, that's great. you've you've been very active in promoting outdoor activities for kids, sort of an ambassador for the importance of outdoor education. And you have two kids of your own whom you've introduced outdoor ways of life, but you do so much more than simply teaching your own kids about the outdoors. You've created a program called A Real Future. That's R-E-E-L. Did I say three E's? R-E-E-L Future. that introduces kids living in foster care to fishing. And you've talked about the increasing numbers of kids in foster care and in the increase in abused, neglected, and abandoned kids in this country. Could you talk a little bit about the A Real Future program and your motivation for creating A Real Future?
1: Absolutely. Um, Honestly, before all of this radio, TV, and writing even happened uh, really strongly in my life, Uh, a real futures was there. And this honestly is where I feel that my blessings have have come from. Um, I met my husband, Captain Tommy LaRange, quite a few years ago, and he shared his story with me. He grew up in foster care and he got given away when he was six years old, unfortunately. And bounced around, gosh, I don't, you know, 16, 17 different foster homes throughout. And someone, he was very angry, upset, and sad. And the story he shared with me is that one of the counselors kind of bribed him and said, if you'll just go to school and try and bring your grades up, then we, you know, I'll take you fishing and I'll get you that new rod and I'll get you that new tackle bag And it really changed his life. You know, he runs a 66 Viking. Now he travels all over the world. Um, You know, obviously he's been a great teacher to me as well. I've learned so much, but it changed his life. So I decided basically the next day after hearing that story, I'm like, we're starting a nonprofit. We're going to work with kids in foster care and we're going to take them fishing. And to date, uh, we have taken over 3,500 kids and growing. Summer's coming up, so um, that number will grow, hopefully, as much as possible. Uh, fishing, and, you know, now do I think they're all going to become captains or it's going to, you know, change their life? I know it does change their life, even for a day, because I hear the stories. A lot of times the kids share stories with me. Sometimes they don't, but you can see, you can see it in their face. You can see what they've been through. Like they don't even have a place to live. They have no family. So to be a normal kid for a day out on a boat, catching a fish, doing something that they would do if they had a family And they get to be happy and be in the moment and just be focused on what they're doing, which is fishing and forgetting about that. That's why we all love to go fishing. You know, Sid, when you're out on a boat and you're trying to land that tarpon, you're only thinking about that. So it's just, it's such a beautiful thing to give them just a great day on the water. Um, Some of the kids I've been fishing with for years, and then they sometimes graduate and go off to college and stay in touch um, or just you know live regular lives and it's it's really it's the most meaningful thing in my life for sure
0: that's absolutely fantastic it's so powerful and very it's more than admirable and i think those of us in the outdoor industry i don't think we should ever stop saying thank you to you for this kind of work that you're doing and, you know you talk about what fishing provides kids who are in the foster care system in terms of things like self-esteem teamwork and awareness for the outdoors and you know across the industry now, there's so much focus on teaching kids to fish, whether it's the takemefishing.org programs mm-hmm. or take a kid fishing. Could you talk about both as for foster kids and just kids in general about why things, why fishing teaches self-esteem and teamwork and awareness of the outdoors and things like that?
1: Absolutely. Um, I can even share it in the form of a story. There was this little boy and he was nine years old and the whole group of them showed up. I was taking 20 kids fishing and he just didn't want a part of it. He thought it's the dumbest thing in the world. Wouldn't even talk to me, wouldn't participate. I tried to kind of connect with them on the boat ride out. We usually go out on headboats boats um, just so I can take a group of them. It's a good first boat experience. And I had found out from the counselor, he had just found out that day, he's never going to see his family again. I don't know all the details, but of course, you know, imagine getting that news and then being, oh, we're going fishing, like who cares? The coolest thing in the world though, is the minute he reeled up his first fish and I was, you know, I had to struggle to get him engaged, but the minute he reeled up that first fish, he changed, like he smiled. He was like a kid and he was happy for that moment and maybe you know obviously he's struggling he's feeling down and depressed and later on in the day even though he had never fished before there was another kid next to him that wasn't catching anything and he was helping them you know so he turned in from you know having the worst day of his life where fishing kind of made a little bit of a difference and then in turn he was actually helping somebody else when he was pretty much having the worst day of its life. And, you know, I see that with the kids all the time, uh, just them reeling it up. They'll be like, Oh, I can't bait the hook or I can't take the fish off and I'll do it for them. But usually an hour or two into it, they're like, Oh, I got it. And then they know that they can do it themselves and I'm not pushing them, but then they want to do it. And then they're showing other kids how to do it. So it creates that teamwork of we did it together Um, I, I was able to, to bait my hook, drop it down, catch a fish, reel it up, take it off completely by myself. And it just really raises their self-confidence. Um, when, I mean, constantly they're just, you know, the world is against them in a way, you know, so it just, it really helps them to know that, you know, there are things that they can accomplish.
0: That is just a fantastic story. And just like I said, we all owe you so much gratitude for this kind of work. It's just fantastic. Um, Let's talk about Let's Take It Outdoors, which is moving into its third season. And as I mentioned in the introduction to this conversation, it's now available on Bally Sports, a Fox News or Fox Sports Network. Tell us a little bit about the goal of the show and what makes it different from the other shows that have been out there for a while.
1: So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of funny because when I first started the radio show, they go in and I go in, i I think I'm mentally prepared. I'm ready for the show. And the producer's like, um, okay, well, what's the name of your show? I'm like, Oh, I never even thought about it. I didn't even think that I need it. I'm like, uh, I just said, Hey, I left something in my truck. I'll be right back. So I go out of my truck and I'm like, Oh man, I need a name for my show. And this is, you know, pre-TV, but, um, so I'm sitting in the truck and Brantley Gilbert's song, you know, take it outside comes on, you know, it's basically, he's talking about getting in a fight and I'm like, Ooh, okay. So I write down in my notebook, let's take it outside. And I'm like, got it. So I run back in the studio and I'm like, okay, the name of my show is let's take it outside. And he's like, okay, cool. Sounds good. He's like, oh, I kind of get it, you know, taking it, getting in a fight. I go, yeah, kind of. So that's honestly like how it how it all began, you know, from from writing, from the radio show and then, you know, over uh, to TV. So it's it's kind of a funny way. You think you're ready. You think you're prepared. But um, in in a sense, you know, I didn't truly know how to do everything. But I had been on a couple shows with uh, Jimmy Houston, which, I mean, let's face it, Jimmy Houston and Bill Dance and Roland pioneered outdoor TV. None of us would have pretty much any of what's going on in this, you know, kind of outdoor reality TV without them. So when they called me and said, hey, how would you like, would you be interested in doing a show? Of course, I said yes, and then realized quickly that I had no idea what I was doing And I called Jimmy and I said, what do I do now? (laughs) Uh And he was gracious enough to kind of walk me through some things and connect me with some people. And um, we started season one and that was just, you know, a a real blessing. And talking about people that pay it forward, you know, the three legends, um, they just do all the time, you know, and uh, they're just, I'm just so grateful to have met them and I met them through a real futures. Uh, that's how I know them. I definitely, um, you know, I'm not a person that would have those guys on speed dial, uh, and normally, but all three of them came down and did a trip on a headboat in the Gulf of Mexico, all three of them on their own dime. And we took about 60 kids offshore and that's how we all became friends.
0: No, oh, that's fantastic. I was going to ask you about fishing with the three of them because what great opportunities and great experiences
1: I know. It's just, I mean, and, you know, and, and it's funny because I've fished with uh, Roland and with Jimmy. I haven't had the blessing to fish with Bill yet, but it's always been saltwater. I've never freshwater fished, which is that's their forte. I don't know if I'm subconsciously trying to even the playing ground or not, but uh, it seems like we've always just saltwater fish and I have yet to freshwater fish with them. I could learn a lot if I did.
0: Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I had a, a great conversation with Bill several years ago about why so many, why he shifted his show to saltwater and why so many bass anglers shift to saltwater, but you don't see a lot of saltwater anglers going back to bass fishing. And he talks about just how thrilling saltwater fishing is. He absolutely loves it.
1: You don't know what's going to happen because, I mean, you think you're setting up, you're going snook fishing or red fishing or whatever, or even especially offshore um you know you're planning and of course you're a good angler and you're going to catch you know the targeted species but you know i was uh, dropping down grouper fishing in the middle grounds and went two for three on sailfish on a dead sardine like that's crazy
0: wow wow uh i love going out of the middle grounds got to love oh it. it's, Hubbard, it's the covered marine trip oh it's fantastic
1: well i'll tell you coming out i'm you know born and raised in clearwater we're a little bit closer And, uh, you know, going kind of back to Tommy, I'll be honest, he was a commercial fisherman for over 20 years. So he spent, you know, 20 years just looking at bottom and fishing in the middle grounds and, you know, catching thousands of pounds of fish commercially. So if, if you want to catch a beast and go with someone that, you know, that's his backyard, definitely I would have to say there's a few people. Tommy Larange, Tommy Butler, um, a couple other guys that I can't think of right now. But I mean, those are the guys where you better be eating your Wheaties because um, it's going down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's no doubt when you're out there, you're working. Uh, yeah. You know, because it's a lot of reeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're hand cranking. And uh, I guess I'm old school. I, I just use, you know, kind of my four, or my 6 uh conventional pens. and You know, to me, that's what works because I guess I'm used to it because everybody's like, you should use this, use that. I'm like, this works for me, so I'm not changing it.
0: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. All right. So in the first season of the show, you Mm -hmm. had episodes dedicated to bass fishing, episodes dedicated to bottom fishing on reefs and wrecks for species like American Red Snapper. Mm -hmm. You had episodes from the Caymans where you fish for Wahoo, Yellow Jacks, and Bonefish. And that great pirate episode from the Caymans, which looked like it was a blast to me, uh, you had an episode on hog hunting, an episode on python hunting, and also one on kayaking. So Mm -hmm. with this fantastic diversity of subject matters, what was your goal in that first season as the show was getting established?
1: So really the the mission and the focus of uh, most everything that I do is to encourage people to get outside and to do something. Uh, There's many times, you know, obviously I cannot be, I'd love to be like, I'm an expert at everything I do. And wouldn't I be great, but I'm not. And most of the time I'm doing stuff on the show that I've never done before, like bow fishing, um, you know, kayaking in whitewater and things like that. So really it's to encourage, to show and encourage people That they can get outside, whether they're a pro or not, or it's the first time or the hundredth time to, you know, maybe get out of their comfort zone, remind them we have to get out of our offices and, and, you know, we all have to work for a living most of the time and, you know, just try something new is what the whole thing is.
0: Speaking of, that's great. You, I got to ask you because on that one episode from the Caymans, you kind of offhandedly say that you hadn't caught a bonefish yet at that point. Have you gotten your bone yet?
1: no still trying I'm still trying I think I'm eight years into it and I have they've swam all around me I've seen them I could probably reach out and grab them if they weren't so fast but I have yet to get my bonefish still oh, wow nothing yet I have checked a few other species off the list I have not gotten a marlin yet um gotten a load of sailfish that was incredible um but no marlin no bonefish
0: uh well, sometime in the coming weeks, um, we're going to have Dr. Bonefish on the show, and he'll give better tune great, in. <laughs> great advice on Bonefish. So you maintained a lot of that broad coverage approach in season two with an episode or two about gators. But mm-hmm. I have to say that for me, the standout episode of season two was the Sanibel Tarpon episode. It's beautifully shot um, during the Doc Ford Tarpon tournament. Mm-hmm. And the last time you and I talked, as you mentioned before, we talked tarpon. So I know you've got a ton of tarpon know-how. I love your short video called Chasing Silver Kings too. So let's take a step away from the show, per se, and let me ask you for your top three tarpon pro tips for our listening crew.
1: Well, um, you know, and again, just trial and error, of course, um, the the very simple 101, uh, I think that people forget because you get all excited, you get caught up in the moment, is of course bowing when the tarpon jumps, you know, giving them that slack. And for me to understand why I'm doing it helps me remember to do it right. So <clears throat> when that tarpon is jumping, if your line is tight, there's a chance they're going to spit the hook. So a lot of people are like, why do you do that? So you want to bow down to the tarpon, which is giving them slack in the line. So hopefully um, they're, that's why they're jumping, to get off. So they're, they're jumping to get away. So give them a little slack in the line and bow to the tarpon. Um, another thing too is as you're following a school, um, a lot of people want to chase them down, get in the middle of them, things like that. You usually don't have very good luck. Man, they are finicky. They kill me. There'll be hundreds around, and you're just begging for a hookup, and they just won't do it, you know. But as you're kind of drifting and they're swimming towards you, you want your bait to really be as natural as possible, drifting with the current and having that natural presentation so they're not shying away from that bite. That's, you know, something that. A lot of people get aggressive. They want to get right in there. They're like, put it in their face. That usually doesn't work. Um, You know, you cannot push them into a bite uh, just because a lot of times they have other things on their mind and it's not eating and they're spawning and they just don't want anything to do with it. So a real natural presentation with whatever bait you're using. Now, one thing that was really cool is... We weren't getting a hook up. They're all on top of the water, but then they would go down and we would see these big mud boils under the water. You'd start seeing this brown coming up. Obviously they're down underneath. We did some chunk bait, cut up some uh, live bait into chunks, dropped it down and got a hookup. So even if you can't sight cast to them on the top and they're not chewing or something, look for those mud boils because, and then, you know, what's it going to hurt to drop something down towards the bottom to see if you can get a hookup. And that worked, that's worked for us a few times. Um, you know, it's a little unconventional, but look for those variations of the water, those mud boils. And, uh, you know, we got two hookups that day doing it. So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent approach. I've always heard that referred to as salting the earth. And uh, that's how we do it, uh, you know, around um, Honeymoon and Caladicea mm-hmm. uh, is to fish that way. So, so that,
1: that was new to, you know, new to me because I do so many different things. If I just tarpon fish, you know, I'm sure I'd just, you know, be way more dialed in. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that was a cool, a cool thing to learn. And every time I go fishing with someone, ask questions, pay attention because most of the time, you know, they're happy to answer and kind of share some knowledge.
0: I think that's such an important point. I've always said that a good guide is also a good teacher. Yes. So I got to ask you, you did a video called Mexico unleashed snook style, where you were fishing with a guy named the Grizz. Could you talk a little bit about that trip and the differences between snook fishing in Mexico compared with the great snooking snook fishing we have on the West coast of Florida?
1: Oh man. Like it just, it blew me away.
0: Um, you know, I flew
1: into Mazatlan, uh, Grizz had called me from Mexico. I'd never met him before, but we talked a bunch of times over the phone. Unfortunately he's not with us anymore and I miss him so much. Um, he, I flew into Mazatlan, they picked me up, never met them. I'm like, okay, I hope I'm going to be coming back. But I'm like, it sounds too good to pass up. We drove about two hours, uh, kind of inland and then went back around like to the coast. And in the morning we would get up and we'd go duck hunting. And over there, it was just incredible. I mean, you could, you pull a tag and you're allowed 60 ducks per tag. So we'd limit out in about hour and a half, two hours with our wood ducks and our um, teals and things like that. We'd go get some lunch and a little siesta and then boom, we're going out snook fishing. It's crazy. The guys out there, they don't even use rod and reels, okay? They're handlining these 40, 45, 50 inch snook. There's no pressure. You're in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's out there fishing for these snook and they're monsters. And they're using, you know, shrimp the size of what you'd get in a, in a jumbo shrimp cocktail. I mean, jumbo live shrimp, and they just put it on the hook. They've got line. The line's wrapped around a stick, and they're dropping it down probably about 20 feet. And within minutes, they're reeling up these monster snook, and they just, boom, flip them in their little boat. A lot of guys don't even have motors on their little boats. And they're just flipping them in the boat. <clears throat> I don't. There's, you know, out there. There's not really any size limits. They eat the snook all the time. It's really good, um, but again, they're not really commercial fishing it either. You know, there's not a lot of pressure. It's it's very untouched. Of course, we were using rod and reels, and we're pulling in these big snook too on rod and reel, you know, i some like, uh, I don't think I can, you know, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that hand lining with a stick thing, but you know, I'll give it a shot if you want me to. And then we were catching and releasing. So it was really funny because the guys that were fishing there locally were like hollering at us. Like, they're like, what are you doing? Why are you throwing the fish back? Cause they're out catching food, you know, either for, for their family or the, you know, there's like two restaurants there and stuff like that. It was, incredible i mean just you want to be in the 40 inch club fish out there because that's every day all day all the time
0: yeah that that video is just absolutely fantastic it was so fun Um, so given that trip and also given i mean let's face it west coast of florida is snook fishing heaven yeah what are the things you would advise all snook anglers to know about snook fishing
1: So over here, you know, like, let's just take Tampa Bay, for instance. And, uh, you know, I just actually uh, filmed a snook show in Tampa Bay like three weeks ago um, with amazing Captain Chris Wiggins. And he is the snook. Him and Brett Norris are the snook whisperers. I mean, they just, they're the bomb. So over here, um, you know, you have to be careful using the lightest tackle possible But still being able to land that fish is really important. Um, They're very skittish and they're ambush predators. So when you're going after snook over here, uh, you really want to look where that water flow is coming down fast. So if there's any bait fish going by, they kind of lay and wait and wait so they can jump, you know, and get that bite. But if you really need to cast, practice your casting, you know, if you're fishing over here, because you've got to cast under those mangroves in that shadow area. Um, That's where you're going to get the bite. And it almost every time, if you can get up under there, stay out of the mangroves, and that can be hard. (laughs) Everybody's going to get caught up every once in a while or a lot, let's face it. But if you can cast right in that, you know, perfect zone, under the mangroves in where the the shadow of the mangroves is you're going to get your hook up in there but you've got to be able to get them out quick obviously they're going to try and break you off too you know so you've got to be quick on the hook set and start reeling as soon as you get it to get them out of the mangroves as well and that's that's a that's good snook fishing over here but practice your casting man because it you know, once you go over there and you've got to get untangled and get everything out of the mangroves, you know, they've moved on, the bite is shut down in that area.
0: That is fantastic advice. Okay. You're a Clearwater native. So I'm guessing you've got a bunch of Pier 60 experience and probably Fort DeSoto experience. Yeah. Um, haven't seen an episode of the show yet featuring pier fishing. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you about Pier 60 experiences And what the renovations to that pier and the local development has done to pier fishing uh, right there at Pier 60 in Clearwater?
1: So, and that's a good question. You know, there have been a lot of development in a lot of new hotels on Clearwater Beach. And that's always a big concern, how it's going to affect um, our ecosystem and our fisheries and things like that. Uh, Honestly, you know, I've done a couple... uh, trips out there with the kids, uh, with the foster kids, and also a group of high school kids from Clearwater High where I went to high school. And um, we actually caught uh, quite a bit, you know, we caught some sheep's head out there um, because they love to hang around those pilings as as everybody knows. So we were pretty successful with the sheep's head bite. Um, There's not really, I'll be honest, there's not a lot of pressure out there on the fish. Now, if you can get out there in the evenings and fish under the lights, I want to say they turn the lights off at about 10. So you got to get there before 10. Um, whether you're on the pier or in a, in a boat or kayak, I see a lot of guys, you know, just fishing in kayaks out there. There are some, some very nice species of snook out there under the lights uh, in the evenings. Um, but like I said, you know, we've caught some grunts. We caught some sheep's head. Um, some um fish you wouldn't unnecessarily eat, you know, of course, out there too, but just bending a rod, uh it's it's pretty active. It's 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 not that bad. I don't think it's changed a ton. Um, they've been pretty careful to really not uh pollute the area. I think they've done well with the construction, but I would really like it if I think we have enough rooms, we're good. Let's just leave it as is. But the fishing out here, you know, it's been good. And also Fort DeSoto. I mean, Fort DeSoto is just as great as ever. It holds the bait on the piers. So it's kind of, I always tell people, it's like ladies night. If the bait's there, the fish are going to be there. So, uh, you know, Fort DeSoto holds a ton of bait. Um, and you can really get some good bites, uh, whether you're wade fishing uh, through off that pass where it kind of drops off. A lot of snook there. They cruise that line right where it drops off up and down because um, they're looking for bait fish. So both both locations, honestly, are really, really good.
0: Yeah, I, I love fishing DeSoto, wading East Beach. Uh, yeah. The two piers are fantastic. So speaking of Pier 60, have you ever had the experience of a silver trout run on Pier 60? Been there when the not. silver trout come in?
1: I have not, but you know what? I've seen a lot of tarpon rolling the last couple of days over by Pier 60. Uh, Um, We were actually just uh, right, a nighttime kind of sunset cruise uh, for my mom. She's in town. And I mean, yesterday, loads of tarpon rolling right in the pass as you're going out clearwater pass before you hang a right. So right now, I don't know if you could land one off the pier, but man, they're there. They're rolling.
0: uh, I have to come check that out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our
1: resident tarpon are, you know, on fire right now. And under, oh, you know, um, under Sand Key Bridge, a lot of people don't think about that, Sid, is right under Sand Key Bridge, a lot of people just anchor up. And when that tide's moving, uh, you can definitely jump some tarpon in there for sure.
0: Yeah, I've I've jumped them off the Skyway, too, from from particularly back before they renovated renovated the uh, old bridge into the pier back when it was just a grungy place to fish from. So that whole area though, Pier 60, Fort DeSoto, Sunshine Skyway, these are also areas that are really well known for Spanish mackerel fishing. Can you give us some pro tips, some local tips for targeting Spanish mackerel from bridges and piers?
1: Absolutely. So I want to say it might've been two, maybe three years ago a buddy of ours, I'm sure you guys have heard a king of the beach, uh, a buddy of ours, one king of the beach with a kingfish, which I know we're talking mackerel, um, right at the Skyway. So a lot of people think, man, you got to burn up fuel. You got to have triples on the back of your boat, go offshore, do all that stuff. He won. I think he won an $80,000, you know, check fishing right there. So. Uh, if you can avoid the dolphins, last time I fished this skyway, there was this annoying dolphin hanging around. And this one boy, he thought it was really cute. He was kept feeding him. I'm like, quit feeding the dolphins. We can't catch any fish because he'd come and steal our bait. Well, when the dolphin, the annoying dolphin is not there. Um, I mean, what I would do like fishing over there, just throw a flat line out, make sure you have your stinger rig on, Um, if you can, if you depends on, you know, what your setup, a lot of people come, man, they unload, they got the setup, they got the, the, the umbrella, they got the rod holders, you know, I definitely, you know, throw out some flat lines with some stinger rigs and I do a little bit of both. I would put a live bait out and also just a dead bait too, because you don't know what they're going to hit on. Um, and of course it's nice because you're on top of the water. So hopefully, uh, you know, you got to reel pretty fast when you get those Spanish mackerel on because they know the drill, they know they can wrap you around the rocks and the debris down there and the, the pier and everything to get you busted off, but just let it go with the current, you know, I've had really, I've had about just as much success with a live bait as I had, you know, a dead bait out there. And there's also a lot of ladyfish out there too, by the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're
1: great bait. Um, so if you can hook one of those, then get that put on and throw that out as well. There's some big old Spanish mackerel out there.
0: Yeah, there are. There are also some, like you said, kings out there. We used to yeah. run clothespin rigs off the Skyway for kingfish with live bait.
1: And you know, in the in the cooler months, the shallow water grouper fishing, uh, trolling over there on you know, really on the, uh, I would say, the east side of the Skyway. You know, if you're facing the Skyway South, to so the over left, by the right clam there, bar, over
0: mm-hmm. by the clam bar.
1: Yeah, there's some good potholes. I mean, you can catch some nice gag grouper in 20 feet of water over there, and you can troll, or even a lot of people do trolling with pumpkin jigs, which is my favorite, only because in an hour, I I jumped and landed a tarpon, caught a 30 inch, uh, 38 inch snook, and got a gag all on the same pumpkin jig within an hour in that area. Wow. In the cooler months though, the water temps got to be cool over there.
0: So I hope
1: I'm not giving away all my secrets. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, it's not like those spots are, are not already not crowded. That's true. Yeah. People, I mean, people are
1: there and they know, but honestly, if you haven't trolled, you know, you put kind of a, you, you put your planer on and just slow troll over there. Uh, honestly, a pumpkin jig, the white color, is what I've been the most successful with. Uh, just, man, it gets the job done. And you just, like I said, I caught three different species on the same thing.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So one of the videos you did, you do some offshore fishing from a sea and you yep. refer to it as the most extreme fishing you've ever done. Now, I've seen at the Miami Boat Show and other places more and more people fishing from these personal watercraft like the Sea-Doo Fish Pro. Could you talk about your experiences fishing from a personal watercraft like the Sea-Doo, especially offshore?
1: That was my first time doing it, but it was cool. I really liked it um they are it was not the calmest day out there as you can see I mean we were like in at least three footers the ride out of course I was questioning myself I'm like why am I doing this but once we got out there and we got where uh we were going to fish and kind of just drift fish on the reef it was actually really cool I mean you've got your live well there uh you can really even kind of stand up on the side you can cast it was really comfortable. I wish, you know, Hey, uh, if you're listening out there, fish pro people, I would love for you to give me one, but (laughs) uh, you know, offshore it worked really great. Um, I was pleasantly surprised how steady and cool it was. Like I said, you've got your live. Well, you had four rod holders. Um, it it was cool to fish on. I I recommend it. And I can really see, I wish we would have had time, to do an inshore segment because, man, you could get skinny in that and come in really quiet for those uh, inshore species, you know, redfish, snook, trout, things like that, tarpon fishing. It would be cool. I mean, it'd be cool to sailfish on that, you know, especially on the East Coast because they come in closer. I mean, I you definitely could land a sailfish on that for sure, you know. Now, a bigger fish, I definitely don't think I'd want a shark fish on it, but I'm a fan. I liked it. It was really cool. And I was, I was grateful that I actually hooked one. And of course, I didn't have my drag set right. And it started like going crazy. Got my drag tightened. And uh, because we had one of the guys had passed me a rod because I needed a different rod. And um, he's like, here, just take this real quick. And I you know rookie move didn't check the drag like a dummy almost lost the fish so um you know fishing 101 check your drag <laughs> but I landed it so I recovered I was very happy but yeah I'm a fan it was cool
0: yeah I've done a fair amount of offshore fishing from kayaks but that sea video really leaves me wanting to try that that just looked really cool
1: I reckon it's fun it's cool and I want to do it more so yeah I mean if And the thing that's, that I liked about it, too, is, I mean, it's easy to trailer. You can put it on and off by yourself. It's, like, no problem. You know, uh, easy to clean. You can store it in your backyard or a small area. So if you don't have room for a boat, but you want to be able to go fishing and have some freedom, kayak fishing is cool. But, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to kayak fish, you know, and paddle 10 miles, you know, and three footers out there. know to go fish the reef that's going to be really tough so yeah i definitely think you should try it they're cool and uh you know i think sid and i if you guys are listening uh fish pro we need to do an episode and uh we'll we'll take them out and go have some fun
0: yeah it sounds great to me yeah hey so one of the themes that emerges in let's take it outside is the attention you pay to invasive species like pythons in the everglades peacock bass in Miami or lionfish on our reefs could you talk about why you've become so interested in the impact of invasive species
1: yeah you know I mean I especially through my work with our next generation of anglers and outdoors people you know we're talking conservation and that's part of conservation so you know especially let's just talk about the pythons and the everglades I mean A lot of people are like, oh, pythons in the Everglades, what's the big deal? There's already snakes and alligators out there, like kind of who cares? The Autobahn society is kind of on like red alert at this point because mammals are disappearing. And I'll be honest, when we were out there, python hunting, I barely saw a bird because these pythons are able to breed and reproduce, except when they're young, they have no natural predators And guess what, in order to grow, they need to eat. They're eating all our raccoons, they're eating all our armadillos, they're eating all our birds because they don't belong there. So they're really messing up uh, our ecosystem. And we may not see how bad it is right now, but I can assure you 10, 20 years from now, when a lot of those animals aren't there anymore and God put them there for a reason, Um, you know, aren't there, we're going to see a big change in our climate and our environment because there aren't any raccoons and there aren't any, you know, a lot of those birds are gone or they're not going there anymore. Um, They're not able to reproduce. So we're going to see a dramatic um, decline in a lot of different species, especially our bird species. So a lot of people don't think about it like that, you know, but um, it's it's something to be, uh, you know, thoughtful about. And like the lionfish as well. I mean, they have to eat too. So they're taking over. If there's a habitat where our snapper and our grouper and our reef fish live, and these guys, you know, kind of like their little gang come in and they push them out and they take their habitat, their food source, and they don't belong there and they have no predators. And other than uh, possibly some of their eggs being eaten when they reproduce, And I've seen a few Goliath grouper videos where they've swallowed some lionfish. But aside from that, I haven't really seen much. So, you know, they're pushing out the species uh, that are using that for habitat and reproduction and taking it over. So if by not introducing these, you know, invasive species to our environment, that would, I mean, it's kind of too late now because they're there, but man, you know, we've got to we've got to really think about what we're doing and, and get rid of them. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people don't understand why.
0: Yeah. And I think also the fact that it's not just relegated to the Everglades that the, the pythons are spreading. I saw an FWC oh, yeah. alert for the to keep an eye out for them this far up into Gainesville, uh, you know, that, that they're moving throughout the state.
1: Which is bad because they're eating. If they're moving, they're eating. They're eating, you know, they might eat your household pet. You don't know, you know. Um, So it's not good that they're being able to adapt and and come up north. Um, I was at the park here in Clearwater in Pinellas County. There was a peacock bass at the park. It was small. Um, I didn't have a rod and reel. I definitely would have tried to, to catch it. Um, but, uh, yeah, now I've seen peacock bass up here. That's not good.
0: Well, you're, you're, ante- you're actually anticipating my next question, which was talk to me about urban fishing for peacock bass.
1: It's super fun. <laughs> and Number one, it's fun. You know, urban bass fishing for regular bass or, you know, peacock bass is fun. Um, you know, in one of the episodes, uh, we have nicknames for uh, some of the places we go, Uh, down in South Florida, you know, we fish at the dump. There's a a good body of water there um, to catch some peacock bass. Of course, uh, don't want to be downwind in the summertime. Learn that the hard way. Don't fish downwind from the dump in the summer. (laughs) Um, But, you know, a lot of these places, I mean, we're crawling under bridges. Um, You do run into some interesting people, uh there was one place you know tommy's like "Uh, you might want to bring your pistol i'm like do we really want to catch peacock bass that bad where i think i need to bring a pistol we may want to rethink this location you know so i was like i think you know we're going to fish somewhere else but it's fun i mean it's exciting i've met some cool people there's iguanas all over the place usually which again another invasive species and peacock bass are aggressive fish i mean they when when they bite your hook, you know it. And um they're very they're very shy, you know, they're getting a lot of pressure now, which is good. Uh so you can't you got to be careful not to even cast a shadow. Um, usually the water is pretty gin clear, uh, you know, where they're hanging out and where we're fishing. I mean, so you've really got to stand back to where you're not even casting the shadow on these peacock bass. They're beautiful fish, but again taken over habitat where, you know, different species that, you know, are from there should be living and they're extremely aggressive. I mean, if you uh, have, you know, a largemouth bass and a peacock bass going after something, I can assure you the peacock bass is going to get it. It's fun though. it It
0: looks fantastic. I know there's now guides down there who target specifically just peacock bass fishing now.
1: Yeah, I follow a couple of the guys, you know, it's fun to, to, to watch them. Uh, You know, I had the, I have better luck and it may be different for someone else, but I've had better luck on live bait than I have lures. They don't, I haven't, I guess I just haven't found the right lure that they like. Um, I've just had a lot better, a lot of, you know, luck on, on live bait than I have on lures with the peacocks. They're pretty smart.
0: Good to know. I will make note live bait when I go down for peacocks. So let me get one more question in about the show specifically, and that's with the show going into its third season, what can we look for in season three?
1: So I'm really excited. Um, Of course, you know, we did some inshore fishing here in Tampa Bay, which is phenomenal. Uh, We're planning uh, another offshore trip, which is going to be exciting uh in the middle grounds and beyond i think we're also going to try and hit some blue water in that one a lot of people don't realize you know um of course you have to go kind of far here but the blue water fishing out here uh off the west coast of florida is phenomenal and this weekend uh i am headed to nashville and i will be fishing in luke combs bass tournament Um, I'm working on, you know, I'm always trying to bass fish more and more to get better. I definitely wouldn't say I'm the greatest, but you know, getting better. Uh, so I'll be fishing, uh, with Luke Combs this next upcoming weekend in his bass tournament and headed to Costa Rica and I've never been to Costa Rica. So, I mean, you know, I'd love to catch a rooster fish that's on my bucket list. So I hope that that happens and, uh, we're having fun. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And we also did an elephant interaction in one of the episodes. So you oh, guys cool. will get to see that. So, you know, you just never know what you're going to see and let's take it outside. That's for sure. A little bit of everything, but it's a, it's always a good time and it's the best job in the world.
0: You can pair your elephant episode with your manatee episodes.
1: Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs>
0: So you you once again have anticipated the uh, my sort of r- my traditional wrap up question and you had mentioned the rooster fish, and our traditional wrap up question on the broadcast is to ask with all that great fishing experience you've had throughout your life, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish on your bucket list that you really want to get on?
1: Man, I really uh, more than the rooster fish. I want to cat, I want to land a marlin. Come on you know i've seen them we've been out there i plan on fishing the loop tournament this year uh which is a marlin tournament um might be fishing the key west marlin tournament who knows maybe i'll get one in costa rica um but yeah i mean i just want one i just want one marlin that would just be incredible
0: yeah that that is a fantastic grail fish and we have certainly you know through the culture of fishing, romanticize the marlin as sort of, of the epic fish that we all want. So
1: yeah. So I'd love to, to catch and release a marlin, any kind, you know, white, blue, black, you know, um, hopefully kind of, I'd be cool with a smaller one. That way it's not, you know, it doesn't take me eight hours to get it in, but uh, you know, a small marlin of any color would be wonderful. That would be just amazing. But I mean, even if i if i don't ever get one just the the pursuit of one uh in, in all the different species you know rooster fish would be cool but i'm i'm going with the marlin
0: you could this chance of picking one up in the middle grounds too
1: you never know i mean you never know so and that again that's you know what i love about fishing in the outdoors you know it's just you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, you know, of course we could spend hours and hours sharing amazing stories. And uh, I know your listeners also, they're probably thinking back to some great stories that uh, you know, they share with their family and friends and their buddies and, you know, in some of the lies we tell. We love it, Sid.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wow. That's all fantastic, Misty. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to season three of Let's Take It Outside. Thanks so much, Misty, for being on the Rodcast.
1: Thanks for having me and uh, love your show. Can't wait to come back and hopefully report that I finally landed that Marlin.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear that. Thanks so much, Woo-hoo! It's time for the Fishing Professor's Bourbon Break! And boy, have we got a bourbon today that ties right in with our fishing lives. Today, I'm going to take a look at Jefferson's Ocean. And as soon as I say those words, you know we're talking about a bourbon with some nautical connections. Like all well-marketed bourbons these days, Jefferson's Ocean has got a great story and a great connection to our concerns over ocean conservation. And yes, the makers of Jefferson's Ocean named the bourbon to honor Thomas Jefferson, our third president and primary author of the Declaration of Independence, the second vice president of the United States, the first U.S. Secretary of State, the second U.S. minister to France, a congressman from Virginia, the second governor of Virginia, and many other governmental positions that helped form this great nation of ours. But let's not focus on the Jefferson part of Jefferson's Ocean, because after all, Thomas Jefferson wasn't even born in Kentucky, so his bourbon roots run thin. And let's focus on the ocean part of the name. First, we need to keep in mind that Jefferson's has three primary whiskeys they sell. Jefferson's Very Small Batch, Jefferson's Reserve and Jefferson's Ocean, as well as eight limited editions, including an ocean cask strength and an ocean weeded. But for today's bourbon break, we're just looking at Jefferson's Ocean. So according to the Jefferson's Bourbon web pages, Jefferson's was founded in 1997, and it's the brainchild of Trey Zeller and his father, Chet. He's a famed bourbon historian. Now, the story goes that the Zeller family whiskey tradition goes back to Trey's eighth-generation grandmother, who was arrested in 1799 for, quote, the production and sales of spirituous liquors. Now, the webpage doesn't say it, but old Grandma Zeller was a bootlegger. I should note that despite the romantic early days bootlegging family ties that the story of Jefferson's promotes, In the early 2000s, the Zellers sold their company to Castle Brands Incorporated, and then Castle was purchased by Pernod Ricard in 2019. Pernod Ricard is a massive French corporation that owns brands that you probably know like Absolute, Beef Eater Gin, Chivas Regal, Havana Club, Jameson, Malibu Rum, Martel Cognac, Glenlivet, Pernod, Plymouth Gin, Kahlua, and many others. But back to Jefferson's Ocean. So apparently Trey Zeller was on the deck of his friend Chris Fisher's research ship, and more on this in a second. And he got to wondering what effect aging whiskey in the hull of a boat might have on the whiskey, how the continuous rocking and such might affect the aging process. So they tried it. And after three years of aging, they announced that the constant agitation and changing climate of a long-range voyage imparted a sweet caramelized flavor reminiscent of a dark rum while the salty ocean air and sea spray gave the bourbon the savory briny character of a scotch whiskey and they decided this was a good way to age bourbon and certainly a great way to promote it so jefferson releases its ocean aged bourbons by voyage like voyage one which it produced about 600 bottles voyage two and so on you should take from this that when each batch, each voyage, is then inherently different from the other voyage batches. So don't expect perfect consistency between bottles from different voyage batches. Now, let me be clear here, too. Jefferson is not distilling their bourbon. They source their bourbons from several several different distillers. And often that means the bourbon is coming from distillers in Kentucky, like Kentucky Artisan Distillers. And at other times, it's coming from somewhere else. So sometimes a Jefferson release will have the designation as a Kentucky straight bourbon, and other times it won't. More often than not, though, you won't know what distiller the bottle you have is sourced from. One of the things I've learned about drinking Jefferson's Ocean more so than other brands is that it really is necessary to check the label on the bottle you're drinking because things change a lot bottle to bottle dependent on the batch, the voyage number, and the outsourced distiller. Okay, but before we get to the bourbon per se, like I said, there's another part of this story that's important to us anglers and ocean fanatics. That guy, Chris Fisher, I mentioned, the one whose ship Trey Zeller was on, well, that guy, Chris Fisher, is the founder of OSearch, the same nonprofit ocean research organization that tracks and monitors Keystone marine species. These are the folks that track the Great Whites, the Makos, tiger sharks, swordfish, and other species like turtles. If you haven't taken a look at OSearch's tracking webpage at osearch.org tracker, or if you don't have the tracker app on your phone, you really ought to take a look at them. There's something really cool about being able to see where a great white or a big mako might be in relation to your own adventures on the water. I know that on several offshore trips I've made over the past few years, we've checked to see if there were any OSearch monitored animals near us. We're always hoping to catch a glimpse of the famed Mary Kay, which is, she's just a massive great white. So yeah, the partnership between O-Search and Jefferson's Ocean is really kind of cool. And the Jefferson's Ocean bottles are aged on O-Search vessels on their expedition. So there's a good chance that the Jefferson's Ocean bottle you're pouring from was sitting forward in the hull while a really big great white or broadbill swordfish was being tagged and released at the stern. In fact, one of the things I really like about the Jefferson Oceans and Ose- OSearch partnership is that on the Jefferson Ocean web pages, they include links to the descriptions of the voyage, the voyage route, and the ship's log from the voyage. The only thing I do wish that they would include, too, though, is some detail about what animals they worked with. I'd like to know if they tagged sharks or swordfish or whatever else on the voyage as I drink the bourbon from that voyage. Now, Jefferson claims that for any given voyage on which barrels are being aged, the typical barrel crosses the equator at least four times and visits more than 30 ports. Now, in this review, I'm looking specifically at a bottle from Voyage 23, which originated in Savannah, Georgia, cruised through the Caribbean, down through the Panama Canal, and then out into the Pacific. The voyage dropped south toward Tahiti, where they ported, and then took off again for Auckland, New Zealand, then to Melbourne, Australia, Fremantle, Australia, then north past Jakarta, through the Java Sea, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea, until they ported in Masan, South Korea. From there, they steamed over to Hitachinaka, Japan, and then back across the Pacific to Tacoma, Washington, and then down to Long Beach, California, before heading south back to the canal and back up to Savannah. And the whole time, this beautiful bourbon I have sitting here was swishing in a sway and tucked away safely in the hull of the Osearch vessel, quietly aging in the ways we wish we could all age. Now, even though it was back in 1997 that Zeller's and Chris Fisher began the aged-at-sea experiments, it wasn't until 2012 that Jefferson's Ocean became available to the average liquor store drinker like us. During those early years, Zeller and Fisher only aged three barrels per voyage as an experiment to see how it would turn out. What they got was a darker bourbon that had a characteristic of a dark rum that were evident not only in the dark color, but also in the sweeter flavor. Because Jefferson's Ocean is a sourced bourbon and usually a blend of different bourbons, one of the things we don't get to know with each bottle is the mash bill. And of course, that means whatever I say here about the bottle I have from Voyage 23 may not accurately reflect the blends from other voyages. Now, I dig the clear lines of this bottle. It's like a big glass flask, and the text work is clean, not overbearing, with a silhouette graphic of the, Oce- the oserch vessel. I like that the label doesn't conceal seeing the bourbon within. I get really frustrated with some bourbon's packaging when the label keeps the light from flowing through the bourbon and you can't get a sense of the coloration of the bourbon, which can often be a telltale about what's inside. Now as to coloration, the Jefferson's Ocean has a tint of brown that, as I noted before, suggests a dark rum, but not entirely. There's still a lot of gold color here, a honey shade like honey on toast, so still very bourbony in color. The nose of the Jefferson's Ocean Voyage No. 23 is sweet, like vanilla and caramel. Since we don't know the mash bill, I can only speculate, but given the sweetness of the nose, I'd bet on a rye-heavy mixture. That sweetness is complemented by a hint of smoky wood here, too. The palate is also pleasantly sweet, still nodding to that rye-heavy blend. That sweetness alludes to some citrus, too, and a tad of spice. But it's really that caramel sweetness that dominates throughout. There's some smoky wood at the back end, but not enough to lay claim to the dominance over the sweetness. Overall, the palate is very pleasant and soft. I want to say that the softness manifests in some floral flavors, but it really is more of a vanilla or caramel softness, which is fine by me because I tend to equate those flavors more with Caribbean flavors than floral flavors, and that just makes me want to associate this taste with warm ocean waters even more. Now, I have to admit, too, that I'm probably buying into the marketing here more than the flavor. That is, I really enjoy this bourbon, but I have to let myself let go of any desire for a, uh, for a dynamic bourbon flavor and accept the sweetness and the Mythic Voyage characteristics as what makes me enjoy this bourbon. It shows most of its flavor neat and tends to fade a good deal on the rocks. I haven't mixed it with anything. I usually don't. But I imagine it would fade in flavor even more with mixers. Look, there's no doubt that the aged-at-sea aspect of this bourbon is what makes this a unique drink. If this were just another sourced blend bourbon that didn't have the ties tie-ins to o or if it wasn't aged-at-sea, I'd probably review this very differently as just a medium-quality blended bourbon. But, man, there's something about the mystique of this bourbon, about aging in the hold of the o vessel, that makes me elevated in my assessment. And that's okay. It's like telling yourself that the Cuban cigar you're smoking is somehow a better cigar even though you know you enjoy your Ebor City roll even better. So look, Jefferson's Ocean is good, and if you take the ocean connection to heart, it's very good, but it's not great. And yes, you might want to take into account too that Jefferson's Ocean runs about 90 bucks a bottle. I've seen it as low as 80 and as high as 115 but figure to pay about 90 That makes it tough to just be an average bourbon. It would be a real good bourbon at $50, but it's a $90 bottle, so it's a good bourbon. It is certainly a great bottle for talking points, for telling the story, and for getting your friends to weigh in on whether they think the salt air, the perpetual rocking, and the equatorial climate changes affect the taste. My recommendation is to get a bottle or two from different voyages, compare them, read about each voyage, and have fun with these bottles. Keep one or two in your galley. So, those are my thoughts about Jefferson's Ocean. Oh, and as a final note, and as my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am, as always, open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my pocket, And my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Humpy's Great Alaskan Ale House in Anchorage. Man, how I love drinking there almost as much as I love eating there. I could go for some halibut nuggets and bourbon right about now. And like my friend the pilot used to say, it is better to be a well-known drunkard than an anonymous alcoholic. As always, if you have comments about this week's Bourbon Break, feel free to email me at sid And now let's get back to the Rodcast. All right, it is time for this week's top 10 list. And this week, I thought we'd take a look at my top 10 favorite circle hooks. Now, picking favorite circle hooks is tricky because the companies that make hooks usually make a variety of kinds with different uses for each. So it's tough to just say something generic like, I really love company A's circle hooks because their light duty hooks may not live up to their heavy duty hooks. And add to the fat that the fact that the circle hooks are used in so many scenarios, ranging from inshore dead bait fishing to offshore live bait for billfish and so on, that things can get confusing. Now, if you want to learn more about hooks in general, you can check out my article in the February 2022 issue of Florida Sportsman Magazine called The Point of the Matter Catching Up on Hook Styles for Florida Fishing, which is really applicable to fishing in other places besides Florida, too. So, this week's top 10 is a bit unorganized in that it combines lighter-use hooks with stronger-use hooks, sort of combining inshore light-tackle use with nearshore and offshore heavier-use hooks. So, it may seem counter-logistical to rate, say, a light-gauge hook as better than a heavier-gauge hook, but that's what I'm doing here. Plus, there are variations in circle hooks with offset versions, inline versions, wide-gap versions, octopus versions, barbless versions, and so on. That all add to the overall complexity of choosing circle hooks for a given scenario. Nonetheless, let's get to the point of this part. <laughs> the point. <laughs> the point of this part of the Fishing Professor show is to start counting them down. So, at number ten, I'm thinking about Mustad's Ultra Point Demon Wide Gap Circle Hook. I love the range of applications of this hook since Mustad makes them in a range of sizes. I love the black nickel finish on these hooks too. And their blonde red is a great version also that I find most useful in inshore fishing, particularly when fishing for redfish. But really, it's the strength of the Mustat's nor-tempering wire that leaves me confident in this hook. It's a true wide gap design, and mustad's point grind, which they call 4.3 Ultra Point Technology, is razor sharp with an opti-angle needle point. Really great hook. So at number nine, I've got Gamakatsu's Offset Octopus Octopus Circle Hook. This is a really popular hook that has earned a reputation as a great live bait hook. I like the eye-up design of this hook for snelling and the black color of the hook. Of course, like all Gamakatsu hooks, the wire is super strong and the hook is beyond razor sharp. All around, it's just a great dependable live bait hook. All right, at number 8, I've got Offshore Angler's lightweight wire circle hooks. But I want to be clear, too, that Offshore Angler, which is the saltwater division of Bass Pro, also has an inline heavy wire circle hooks and inline circle hooks more generally. At number 8, I have the light wire circle hook, because these are the versions of the hooks that I've used mostly for inshore fishing situations. I like the lighter gauge on the wire in the hooks and the sharpness of the hook. Plus, because they're Bass Pro house brand, The price of these hooks tends to be a little bit lower than most other comparable hooks. So if you're going through a lot of hooks or fishing with kids or novices, I like to go to these reliable but sort of disposable hooks for mass use. All right, at the number 7 position, I have got Eagle Claws Laser Sharp L197B Barbless Circle C Offset Circle Hook. (sighs) What a mouthful. Like a hook. And of course, you can't talk about fishing hooks without giving nod to Eagle Claw's preeminent position among hook manufacturers over the years. I think most everyone I knew as a kid had a sleeve of those Eagle Claw hooks in their tackle box. But yeah, their L197B barbless circle C offset circle hook hook is a reliable smart hook design. I love this barbless hook when I'm fishing strictly catch and release because the circle design induces safe corner of the mouth hookups and then without the barb the hook removal is easy. This is an offset hook too which adds to the security of the hookup. For me this is one of the best hooks for fishing for bonefish for instance. All right, and number six, I'm going to turn back to Gamakatsu and their big eye circle hooks. This hook is made from a high carbon steel wire and has a great sharp point. Now, I point this out because this hook, it really is a derivative of Gamakatsu's standard circle hook with the eye of the hook expanded to make it easier to tie heavier leader lines. A lot of times, regular-sized hook eyes just can't accommodate larger diameter mono leaders, which can be crucial when, say, live baiting for anything from sailfish to snapper or chunking for tuna. So my number six is really a great hook, but it's the big eye that makes it worth recognition. All right, sitting at number five is Owner's SSW Circle Hook. Now, if the Gamakatsu's big eye is here because of its big eye for rig- rigging, then the Owner SSW Circle Hook is here because of its up eye design, which is designed for easier snelling. That said though, the owner SSW hooks are made with a really strong light gauge wire. The hook has a medium shank and is what you might think of as sort of a slightly offset hook because the offset is only about four degrees offset. I also have to say that I found, I've always found owner hooks to really live up to their claims of corrosion resistance. That said, Let's stick with Owner hooks for the number 4 position as well in the countdown. And I'll give the number 4 spot to Owner's Mutu light circle hooks. Now these hooks have a bit of a sharper bend in the circle, which makes these hooks great for live baiting. And while my experience with these hooks has been running live Penfish, Greenbacks and Pogies mostly, Owner does promote these for live baiting in freshwater as well as saltwater. I also use these hooks in a size 1 for live shrimp for all kinds of inshore fishing, ranging from mangrove snapper to speckled trout to redfish and even bonefish. It's a really dependable live bait circle hook. Okay, at number 3, I want to come back to Mustad and their 39960D and 39965D circle hooks. Now, like other Mustad hooks, the 39960D and the 39965D circle hooks are made with a super strong wire designed for big game. These are inline hooks, but what really gets my attention with these hooks is the really short shank. The hook is designed for live baiting, and the short shank keeps the hook profile very low within the bait, keeping the hook tight to the bait without a shank sticking out away from the bait. I like that low profile aspect of a hook when live baiting for bigger fish, whether on the bottom or higher in the water column. All right, in my runner-up spot, I want to praise Diachi's Bleeding Bait Circle Wide Gap Saltwater Hooks, which are manufactured by TTI Blackmore Fishing Group, a phenomenal tackle company. I think I've become more reliant on the Diachi Bleeding Bait Circle Wide Gap Saltwater Hook for most of my inshore bait fishing than more than any other hook. What really turns me on about these hooks is that they are kind of a hybrid hook that combines a wide gap hook design on a traditional circle hook design, That combination makes it easy to hook baits because of the wide gap and then helps ensure safe corner of the mouth hookups, which I find useful when fishing catch and release for trout and redfish in particular. I also think that the red coat on the hook gives the visual impression of a bleeding bait. Just a great hook. I try to keep a box of these with me when fishing inshore. They're very reliable and very dependable. Okay, that's the top nine with my number one circle hook still ahead of us. But before we get to the big reveal, let's do a quick recap of the first nine. At number 10, Mustad's Ultra Point Demon Wide Gap Circle Hook. At number nine, Gamakatsu's Offset Octopus Circle Hook. At number eight, Offshore Angler's Lightweight Wire Circle Hooks. At seven, Eagle Claws Laser Sharp l One Nine Seven b Barbless Circle C Offset Circle Hook. Huh. <sighs> At number six, Gamakatsu and their Big Eye Circle Hooks. At five, Owner's SSW Circle Hook. At four, Owner's Mutu Light Hook. At three, Mustad's 39960D and 39965D Circle Hooks. At number two, Diachi's, Diachi's Bleeding Bait Circle Wide Gap Saltwater Hooks. And that brings me, brings us to my favorite circle hook. And this is a hook that the first time I saw it, I was literally taken by the beauty of this design and wanted to wear one as a necklace. Like so many anglers wear Maori hooks as jewelry, but I realized that the point of the hook was so ridiculously sharp that I couldn't wear it as jewelry unless I ground down the point and the barb, which I never did. Jewelry aside though, I fished this hook quite a bit reef and wreck fishing as well as live baiting for sailfish and kingfish. And I'm talking about my number one circle hook, and that's the Gamakatsu Nautilus HD circle hook and Gamakatsu Super Nautilus saltwater circle hooks. These are some of the strongest hooks I've encountered with some of the sharpest points I've used. I love that they also come into heavy-duty Nautilus version that is a bit more stout, and then, and then the Super Nautilus, which is just a horse of a hook. That's the one I wanted to turn into a necklace jewelry. It's also become my favorite blackfin tuna hook. I also like that you can get the Nautilus series hooks with rings in the eyes, making them easier to rig with wire, and also gives more freedom of movement to the hook when live baiting. So yeah, the Gamakatsu Nautilus series comes in as the fishing professor's number one circle hook. And that's it for this week's Top 10, one of the sharpest lists I've done so far. As always, don't forget that if you have comments or questions about my top 10, please feel free to email me at Sid And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And as a reminder, my top 10 list is not sponsor influence, since I have no sponsors. Woe is me. Well, as I feel the blues setting in, and not in that good way when the surf comes alive with a fantastic bluefish blitz along the coast of the Outer Banks. No, I have them deep down, low down blues, what we all get when we find ourselves at the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, I want to thank Misty Wells for taking the time to join us on the show today. And with all seriousness, be sure to check out Let's Take It Outside. It's a fantastic show, and Misty is one of the best at teaching us about fishing and other fantastic outdoor skills, habits, and ways of life. She is hands down one of my favorites in the business. So thanks, Misty. Thanks for being on the show today. Of course, I hope you enjoyed that Jefferson's Ocean Bourbon voyage we took. And I got to say that right in that review... Left me with a new life philosophy because now I want to be like Jefferson's ocean and age slowly on the bow of a boat cruising the world's oceans, getting a deep bourbon colored tan and getting smoother with age. I do hope, too, that my sharp top 10 list of circle hooks pricked your interest and spurred your interest like a thorn in your thumb. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The outrigger has sprung. I say again, the outrigger has sprung. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you uh, will check it out. And I hope that each member of my listening crew will get out there and recruit more listeners to our weekly rating program. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about a specific fishing-related issue, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing, and be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other golden content. I will be next back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on!
1: The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!